Hi, my name is Chris Parley, and my husband Jim and I have been coming to First Family Church for 11 years now. And I wanted to share with the body of Christ just God's sanctifying work in my life. In 1989, I moved here from St. Paul, Minnesota, and um, about two years after that, a friend of mine had kept inviting me to come to church at Des Moines Baptist, and I was really scared. One day I showed up, and um, the moment I walked in, I knew there was something different about that church, and after that, uh, one of the pastors, Chris Mavity, talked to me, and told me about Christ and how he died on the cross for my sins and did I believe and would I believe and I did. I got into a Bible study and um, got into a single Sunday school class at Des Moines Baptist and that's where I met my husband Jim and um, we got married in 1995 so I wasn't a Christian all that long but I knew that I wanted to marry a believer and Jim loved the Word of God and we would spend time in the Word and he would explain things to me and my eyes were being opened to the scriptures and I just loved it and just was falling in love more with God and with Jim. When we got married, I was so desperate. I thought that um, Jim or any guy loving me was um, going to be the the thing that filled me and made me secure. A couple years after we were married, um, a lot of my old behaviors um, got in the way and I, I had a, an, an adulterous affair. And um, I didn't know what I was getting into. I had no idea the stronghold that I would be in. And um, it took me a long time. I, I wanted out, but I didn't want out, and I found myself in a hamster wheel effort. I heard it said in a book where you're, it's a sin confess, sin confess, and when I read that, I realized that's me. I'm just that hamster on that wheel, and I can't get out of this, and, and I want to stay married, but I don't know how to do this, and I, I, I'm doing what I don't want to do, but yet what I want to do, I'm not doing. And, um, and I just know that at that time, I just began to pray, God, I, I need you. I, I don't want to do this anymore. And I, I can still in my mind remember the last time uh, I came home and I was bawling. And I, I told Jim, I'm so sorry, and confessed to him. and. Um, he just held me and he forgave me and I'm so thankful for Jim and I know that God um, has him to be my husband because he's forgiven me like Christ has forgiven me. And a lot of times people will come to me, women, and say, how come you're so um, happy and you are just so loving? and I tell them, you don't know what I was like before. And God has forgiven me so much. So one of my life verses is Luke 7, 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And that's why I love much, because God has loved me so much and to have him heal me, completely heal me, transform me because of his word at work in me. And that's where I found out that's the power of the word of God. Can we give glory to God for his beautiful story in Jim and Chris Parley? Amen. Chris is there and Jim's there and love this family. Remember the first day they came to our church? There's a lot to be gained from that story. But I want to draw your attention to one aspect, and that is that both Jim and Chris know 
and have connected God's forgiveness and our forgiveness. In other words, they've made, they've merged two truths. God's forgiven me, so I will forgive you. This is really the heartbeat of how Jesus closed his teaching on prayer with this idea of forgiveness, which if maybe I'm the only guy in the room, but I think that's kind of odd. Like if you're going to teach on prayer, why would you suddenly throw in this little nugget about forgiveness? Like that seems like a weird thing to do, right? This is about prayer. But I want to show you today just exactly why forgiveness is so vital to praying biblically. So let's take our Bibles, turn them on, open them up. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking mainly at verses 14 and 15, all right? It's the final two verses that conclude what we know as the Lord's Prayer. It's actually the disciples' prayer, and it's 11 verses on Jesus' teaching about prayer. As an overview, here's kind of how the 11 verses break out. I want to jot this down while you look at it on the screen behind me. Uh, Matthew 6, I think basically verses um, 5 and 6 talk about how we're not to pray to be seen by other men, but we're to instead pray humbly before God. 7 through 13, which is actually the disciples' prayer, the focus is this, don't pray to be heard as other men, but pray simply to God. And then this week we're going to talk about how we're not to pray with unforgiveness towards other men. Instead, we're to pray gratefully to God, or you could even say forgivingly to God. Now, what's the connection? How do we do that? That's the gist of these final two verses. Matthew chapter 6. I'm just going to read the final two verses. We've been in these 11 verses for three weeks. Here's what Jesus says to end his teaching on prayer. He begins in verse 14, 4. And you know, that's just a, a continuing word, isn't it? I mean, we're jumping into a thought here. You can kind of sense that. This is used as a conjunction here, and he's going to explain to us something about the idea of of forgiving uh, those who trespass against us, forgiving our debtors, having our debts forgiven. This is mentioned in verses 12, and, and so he's going to say something more about this. So he says in verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That's a positive statement, isn't it? The word forgive means to send away. It means to release. In fact, if you were to take the word and divide it, the beginning prefix of this word is a preposition that we call a preposition of distance. In other words, it means that that, that, uh, inherent in the word's word's meaning is that there's a space being created. We're going to send something away. We're going to release. We're going to create a distance between ourselves and this issue, this thing. That's what forgiveness is. It's releasing, letting go, creating distance, sending something away from you. So he says here, we should forgive others their trespasses. Notice the word trespasses here is different than the word debts in verse 12. Do you see that? The prayer actually says, forgive us our our debts as we forgive debtors. But in concluding this, he kind of widens that circle and says, for if you forgive others their trespasses. I think what he's doing here is, it's just simply broadening the view to, to include other items. I mean, debt's kind of a financial word. Now, Jesus did not necessarily mean here only financial situations, even though he used that word as a metaphor to possibly talk about sins, uh, ways that we perhaps either uh, sin against others or they against us, and so we incur, we might call it relational debt. He uses the word trespass here to indicate stepping over a line. You've seen a sign, no trespassing, and if you do, you step over a line, you... You deviate. That's the word here. So one's kind of a, uh, we'll call it a a property metaphor. One's a financial metaphor. In Luke's account, he uses the word sins. And if I might be this bold, I think that's a competitive metaphor because the word sins was often used in archery to indicate just how far away you were from the bullseye. So an archer might shoot a bow and an arrow, and he might be three circles away from the bullseye, and they would say, sin three meaning you're three circles away from the bullseye. So in, in competition, in 
property and finances. The point is this. We sin against people. They sin against us. And forgiveness is imperative. If we forgive others, then our Father will forgive us. Verse 14 is the same thing from the negative angle. Excuse me, verse 15. This begins with the conjunction, the word but. Do you see this? So really you have in these two verses the same thought repeated, don't you? From a positive angle and then a negative angle. Look at verse 15. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So when I read these two verses and, and, and thought, why in the world would Jesus conclude his thoughts and teaching on prayer with these verses that are repetitious about forgiveness? Is that a legitimate question? Maybe you're wondering that. Like it seems like he would say instead, so get to your knees and pray. Or like, you know, he would say something about prayer. Instead he says, oh, by the way, so, so if you forgive, your father will forgive you, and if you don't forgive, he won't forgive you. Like, man, what's going on with that? Here's what I think is happening. Because I think this is one of like three questions I was asking about these verses. The first one is, what, why this issue of forgiveness? Why the focus on that? It's because in forgiveness, now listen very carefully, we prove the authenticity of our relationships. And you say, why do you say that, Todd? It's because of the real thread throughout the Lord's teaching on prayer. Now, follow me. Don't turn your brains off here. I'm not saying you would normally, but just listen to me and follow me. In the entire 11 verses, what is one of the common things Christ warns against? He says, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites, right? When you give your alms, don't be like the, you can say it in church, go ahead, hypocrites, When you pray, don't be like the... And even in the prayer passage, he says, don't be like the hypocrites or even the pagans. He kind of gives two examples there. The point is, in these three areas of Christian discipleship, fasting, giving, and praying, he says, don't be like the hypocrites. So what would be more hypocritical than talking to your father about forgiveness? Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us, so to speak, what would be more hypocritical than praying that and then actually not forgiving those who've sinned against you? You would be just like the very pagans he's asking you not to be like. Does that make sense? So to pray and to ask God for forgiveness and to know that you can pray because you have forgiveness. I mean, the whole point of the first two words of the prayer, our Father, say it with me, Our Father, that indicates relationship. Someone has brought you into relationship with God. That whole relationship is possible because of forgiveness. And so to actually enjoy and experience forgiveness, and yet, church, listen, not to extend it is the height of hypocrisy. So so why end on forgiveness? Because it's in forgiveness that we prove our authentic relationships. I would venture to say, in your relationship, you know this to be true. You can take the most intimate one called marriage, and most married folks would say this, their spouse has proved the authenticity of their covenant in those moments when forgiveness was hard, but they got there. It probably wasn't on your family vacation. It wasn't at a Christmas tree. It may not have been at a birthday party. It was probably in that moment when you had a crisis and you're in the intersection between, your, between you and your spouse and you're like, how are we going to get through this intersection? We're about to have a crash. But somewhere in that, God's power proved enough to bring forgiveness and you realized this marriage is legit. We're going to make it. It's authentic. It's real. Does that make sense? And you may have seen it in even the simplest of relationships, just a friend. Maybe you knew them a long time, maybe you didn't. But then you hit this odd place and something happened. And you settled it and you realized, wow, this is a real friend because this could have blown up and instead we forgave. So it could be a simple relationship or, a, or an intimate one, but forgiveness proves authenticity. It's because someone stays in the batter's box with you. We're going to hang in there with you and we're going to get through this. We're going to forgive. We're not going to turn our backs and run. 
We're not going to pretend or deny. We're going to hang in there and we're going to forgive. So I think that's why he ends with the forgiveness because in prayer and in the Christian life, forgiving is the way to prove we're authentic and not hypocritical. When we pray and ask for forgiveness and we're willing to extend it. Now, as I thought about that, and it really raised and elevated the importance of forgiveness in our praying and our living, I began to ask a couple of questions then. Okay, well, if that's really how relationships, if that's how they're proved as authentic, if that's what we, you know, if that's kind of the, the melting pot or the, or the forging of, of what's legit and real, is this talking then about salvific forgiveness? Now, it's a big word. But it just simply means this. Is this talking about the kind of forgiveness that we experience in salvation? Because the text seems to say that because forgiveness really kind of proves your authenticity, it's what sets you apart from being like the hypocrites. When you can pray and enjoy forgiveness and then extend the very same kind of forgiveness, when you can do that, you're consistent. That's, that's not hypocritical. Is he saying here that then if we do that, we'll get forgiveness, and if we don't, we won't. He's saying that, it, that to be saved... To enjoy salvation's forgiveness, we have to first forgive people. Is he saying here you earn your salvation that way? No. Let me be very clear here. This is not salvific forgiveness in view. That's kind of an odd word. It simply means forgiveness related to salvation. Christ here is not speaking to unbelievers or to those who are curious as seekers. He's talking to those who have gathered as his disciples in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount three chapters of how to live radically as a disciple. So he talks about giving and praying and fasting, laying up treasures in heaven, how to treat those who wrong you. This entire section is geared toward believers who are following Christ as a disciple. And so to those people, he says, within your relationships among the spiritual family, this is about that type of, we might call it fellowship forgiveness. Can we use that word okay? Say it with me. Fellowship forgiveness, not salvific forgiveness. This is not about the kind of forgiveness that God extends at the cross when we bring all of our brokenness and sin, all of our spiritual debt, with nothing in our hands we bring, and we fall before God in repentance. And we're like, God, my life, apart from you, I'm bound for hell. I've got nothing. And God in his gracious mercy saves us and forgives us, forgives us without anything we've done or can do, right? Are you with me? This is not about that kind of forgiveness. It's about the kind of forgiveness that really exists in the fellowship of the family. So that's the first question I ask. Okay, if this is so important that it, he's saying that forgiveness proves the validity of your relationships, the genuineness, the, the authenticity of it, what kind of forgiveness is it? It's not salvific. It's the kind of fellowship forgiveness. I had one last question then is this forgiveness conditional? Because it sure sounds conditional. Am I the only guy in the room that thinks that right now? But when I read this, I'm like, man, okay. So I feel better knowing that it's not a salvation situation. Like God doesn't save only those who forgive others. Like, good, I'm glad about that. But yet it still says that, that if we forgive, God forgives us. And if we don't, he won't forgive us. Do you read that? You can say like this. I'll hear your head rattling, right? Like, that's just like, Wow. What's going on here, Todd? This is a conditional verse. So let's answer the questions. Is it salvific forgiveness? No. But is it conditional forgiveness? Yes. Now, that's not hard to grapple with when you think about it, but most of us are conditioned by our culture to kind of uh, see forgiveness and, and repentance and this whole issue as, as just kind of an easy situation. Like, I'll oh, just ask, he'll give it to you. Just, just tell him, you know, hey, I'm sorry, I forgot that. Let's forgive and forget, let's move on. Here, remember, forgiveness is elevated. It's moved up the ladder as one of those things that really validates relationships, proves the authenticity of them. And so it's conditional in this way. When in fellowship with each other and with God... When in that environment, vertical and horizontal are merging and intersecting, when we refuse to forgive a brother or sister and hold something against them, that's sin. 
And Psalm 66, 18 says, If I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And the Lord is not obligated to hear the prayer of one of his children if they're harboring sin and treasuring that more than they are Jesus. Furthermore, 1 John 1 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what does forgiveness hinge upon? Confession. Saying the same thing as within the family, within the body. Now understand something here. I'm going to get kind of theological with you. It's only your experience of forgiveness that hinges on that. Because when Jesus died, he forgave all of your sins, past, present, and future at one time, didn't he? His, his death in those three hours of paying the price was sufficient for everyone forever. All those that God calls to his side, they will be forgiven past, present, future. But your experience of that forgiveness is in the moment hinged with and under, undergirded by confession. I hope you kind of follow me there. All right? Um, so for this reason, I think we have to be honest about the text. Within fellowship, both vertically and horizontally, there is a condition to forgiveness, and it's this, that you forgive others. That's the plain, stark reading of the Scriptures. By the way, this is borne out in other places too. Matthew 18, there's a parable there about a king and a servant. The servant owed the king, as the text would say, an unparalleled amount of varied debts. The king, because the servant asked for mercy, went ahead and just said, you know what, I'll release you. I'll send this debt away. I'll, I'll let it go. And the servant leaves grateful, but then he finds someone who owed him a very small amount and threw him into prison, wouldn't let him out until he paid this really small, you know, double-digit amount, perhaps. Well, the king heard about it, went back and got the servant, called then a wicked servant, and put him back in jail. In response to that story, here's what Jesus said, Matthew 18, 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Sounds pretty conditional. Within the fellowship, the family, God says there is not forgiveness for those who withhold forgiveness. Why? Because you're harboring, you're keeping a sin unconfessed. You're holding on to something that you treasure and consider more valuable than what Jesus actually did for you, and that is forgive you. So it's impossible, as well as hypocritical then, for you to expect to receive what you're unwilling to extend. Again, it's not salvific in nature, but it's fellowship in nature. And Jesus here says plainly to the family of disciples, when we are unwilling to forgive each other, God will then will not forgive you because it's harboring unconfessed sin. It's holding on to something that you know you should let go. So settle that with God first and then enjoy that forgiveness as well. That's the plain meaning and reading of this text. Now, understand something here. Inherent in these two verses, Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, is the understanding that God has forgiven us. You, you follow me there? So let's understand this, that Jesus is not expecting us to, to forgive those within his family out of sheer human power. He's not saying, well, you can do this because you, you know, you're good enough or you have the capacity I think the, the implication that's understood is this. Because God has forgiven you, you can and should forgive those who belong to the same family. That's the point of Matthew 6. That's the point of Matthew 18. It seems to be the point of what Paul echoed in Ephesians 4. In fact, you may remember this verse. If you know it, kind of say it along with me. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Now watch what Paul does here. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. See, Paul associates forgiving others, which is mandatory among the family, with the sense that, wow, why wouldn't we? God's forgiven us. 
So when I come to you this morning and I say to you, forgiving is necessary. It's mandatory as a brother and sister. I mean, it's what we do and it proves that we're authentic and not hypocritical. It's the one thing that says, man, I'm legit. I'm, I'm, I'm real. I'm, I'm authentic. Why? Because we root that in the understanding that we have been forgiven by God. I hope that's connecting and that's clicking. I realize it's odd to hear a preacher say this is a conditional verse. That may have hit you odd, but I would challenge you to really read the scriptures, wrestle through it, and then let that be used by God to elevate the importance of forgiveness within the faith family. Remember, what he's doing here is he's speaking against hypocrisy. And nothing is higher in hypocrisy, we'll call it, than a Christian praying to a father. And that's only possible because of Christ, right? A a Christian praying to a father who's unwilling to reconcile with a brother or sister. It's hypocritical, and that's the whole point. Don't pray like the hypocrites. So what must we do? We must be willing to forgive. Let's put this in a sentence, can we? Here's kind of how I'd word this. If I had to kind of take two verses, which are pretty short already because they just repeat themselves. You can't get better than that. But here's kind of how I'd say it. Write this down, jot it. Praying with nothing left to be collected. That's the idea of the definition of forgiveness, by the way. You know, you're looking at things financially or competitively or even in a property sense, but you realize, you know what? There's, there's no more debt. The invoice is paid. I'm not trying to collect anymore. This is, this is done. It's, it's paid in full. So when I pray, I'm not going to pray in regards or in a way that looks like I'm trying to collect anything. I'm going to pray willingly, graciously, extending through Christ what I've gratefully experienced in Christ, which is in a word what? Say it with me. Forgiveness. And when we pray this way and when we live this way, we show our legitimacy, our authenticity, that we truly belong to God. In fact, the converse of that is true. Listen very carefully. Based on Matthew 18 and based on Matthew 6, it must then also mean that an unforgiving heart reveals an unforgiven heart. So, praying gratefully, praying forgivingly means I'm not trying to aim at collecting anything from anyone. Why? Listen, church, because God's not trying to collect anything from me. Have you you thought about that? Church, listen, listen very carefully. Ears wide open. God's not trying to collect anything from you. God's not sending you an invoice tomorrow morning. Your debt as his child has been paid 100% by Jesus. Amen? I mean, you're not going to arrive in heaven, you know, with payment due. (laughs) You don't have one more month left in your installment plan. You know, God's not giving you a little bit of like, uh, you know, like uh, three-month reprieve. When you see God, there is no condemnation. You, and, and hear this well, you don't owe God a thing. Wow, who would ever say that about God? The Bible. Now, the flip side of that is this. You owe God everything. Can you live with that, that tension? Sure you can. My point is this. When it comes to forgiveness, you don't owe God a thing because Jesus paid it all. There's the motivation for living in the same fashion among his family. You're not going to get a bill from God. Don't expect an invoice. So don't send one either. Don't collect. Let it go. Release it. Forgive. Now, because I am fully aware that that's something all of us wrestle with in this room, 
I mean, I was dealing with this at 22. I'm dealing with it at 52. And whatever your age, I suspect you're dealing with it. Forgiveness is not an easy thing. Would you agree with that? Say, yeah, you, you sound a little weak, but I'll, I'll go with that. Guys, let's just be honest. It is very difficult. We preach about it. We take a few minutes to discuss it. But in, in, in real life, I mean, it's, it's months and weeks or, or days or years. It's a process. It's, it's like, okay, we're going to forgive. We've made our minds up to do that. But that journey can sometimes be arduous and difficult and almost repetitive. You go back to that moment. No, I forgave. I forgave. But that thing keeps popping up. I want to reach up and grab it by the throat. You ever been there? Yeah, sure you have. So can we just admit that this is one area of theology that's hard to get all the way down to our feet. Could somebody say amen to that? Now, if you're new, I want to pause here and say this to you. We're actually in this three-week series on prayer because in our larger study of James, we came to a section on prayer in Elijah. And we just sensed the Holy Spirit telling our elders and our church that uh, let's just pause and learn more about prayer in general. So we kind of pulled over and looked to Matthew 6 for some teaching on prayer. This all comes out of James, and James is a shoe-leather theology kind of book, isn't it? James's whole point is, hey, let's live out what we say we believe. And in this case, praying without any you know, unforgiveness, praying without trying to collect from people. Man, we know that's theologically right, but it is practically difficult. That's why I'm actually done with the theological textual aspect of the message. This is a little earlier than usual. You're like, man, 15 after and Todd's done explaining the text. It's amazing, right? Well, there's only two verses in my defense, okay? And they repeated themselves. I got a break, right? Because I just kept chewing on these verses for the last few weeks and thinking if, if the church, I mean, if we're, we're a lot alike. I mean, if, if they're in the same boat I'm rowing, I, I know where I got to get to theologically. Ephesians 4.32, Matthew 6.14 and 15, Matthew 18.35. I mean, I can see that goal. I can see the island over there. Land ho! I can see that, right? But man, the the, the waters to get there, I'm rowing. I'm like, man, there's some rough waters to row in. You ever felt that way? So I want to help you row your boat to that end. I want to help you get practically to what we know is true theologically. Begin to write some thoughts and some notes, read some more scriptures, and think about what are some things I could share with our people that would help them get there. Maybe not overnight, maybe not over week, maybe not over month, but in time, with your commitment to forgiving anyone in your family spiritually, because God's forgiven you. With that as the mandate, how can I get there, Todd? I want to share with you kind of four things. I don't call them tips. I think these are biblical I think they're spot on. Um, I won't necessarily back them up with a verse here this morning. I just want to kind of share them with you as kind of biblical guides to help you get there, okay? We'll talk about them for a bit, and then we'll give you some time to practice at the end. But here's four practical biblical guides to get you to that place practically that you already are there theologically, all right? First of all, immerse yourself daily in the gospel. In fact, let's repeat it together. Ready? Gospel immersion daily. Say it again. Gospel immersion daily. Here's why. In our culture, we tend to think that forgiveness is easy. We tend to think that it doesn't cost anyone anything. It's more like, well, you know what? Yeah, I know you're wrong. I was probably wrong. We use words like, if I offended you, or I probably messed up here. We have all these ways to make sure no one feels too badly. And so, you know what? Let's just kind of like forgive and forget, and we'll go on. And we we think we put something to rest without experiencing or absorbing the pain of it, and we wonder why it crops back up. Here's why. Because there is no forgiveness without someone absorbing the pain. Who absorbed all of your pain and debt on the cross? Jesus did. So God now is able to do what? Forgive you. But without Christ's death, there is no forgiveness. Likewise, in our horizontal relationships, someone has to be willing to take the role of of the one wronged and bear the offense, bear the pain, absorb the cost, and say, I will let you go 
I'm not going to collect. I'm not going to make you pay. I'll absorb that and forgive you. Not as a martyr or as a way to kind of be arrogant or proud, okay? That could be the tendency. That's Satan talking to you if you hear that. Don't believe that and go down that road. But neither should you think that there isn't pain. I, I've, I've met folks and they've asked, Todd, why does it still hurt? And I've said to them, here's why that still hurts. Because you absorbed the pain of that situation. You were wronged. Even if it's unintentional, you were wronged. And you want that to be better without pain. And it's impossible. There, there is no better without pain when you forgive. Someone has to absorb the hurt. Does that make sense, guys? You only find the power to live that way when you have gospel immersion daily. When you look at your role model, when you look at your Savior, when you look at your, your, the one you're to imitate, and you realize, wow, that's what he did for me. He bore all my sin. He paid all my debt. He took all my shame and pain. And I enjoy all the benefit. Okay, so that's forgiveness. So then you say to your husband, you say to your spouse, yeah, you know, that really hurt. But I forgive you, and we'll get through this. You don't giddily laugh. Oh, yeah, we'll get over it. Don't worry about it. Just forgive and forget. No, th- there was legitimate, honest pain. But forgiveness is a willingness to bear the pain and let them go. Send it away. Does that make sense, guys? I want you to understand that's not easy. I'm not trying to pretend it is, and I'm not trying to make light of this. I'm trying to say that for God to ask us to do that would require God-like motivation, and you find that in the gospel. So what are we going to do? We're going to say it with me. Gospel immersion daily. You should wake up every day and think this. I don't know your morning routine. Mine is to get out of bed and stumble to the shower, and maybe somewhere in the next 15 minutes I'll wake up. Are you with me? But somewhere between that bed... In that bathroom, here's what goes through my mind every single day in some fashion. Wow, I woke up breathing. I'm not going to hell. God has saved me. So whatever happens today, whoever offends me, whoever I offend, we can get through it because, man, I'm not in the flames of hell this morning. Does that make sense? It's perspective, people. You may laugh at that and think it's kind of funny, but boy, it sure changes your outlook when you realize, okay, I'm in the shower, I'm breathing, I'm... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm living. I've got new mercies to deal with whatever comes today. So because God has done such a miracle work for me, yeah, I'll extend that today for whatever lies ahead. So just gospel immersion daily. Say it again. Gospel immersion daily. Some other ways you can do that. I would try to read through the gospels on a regular basis. It's something I do personally. I read through the pastoral epistles every single week. There's just three books. They're real short, take like 15 minutes. But I am a, I'm a continuously reading through the Gospels, Matthew through John. Why? Because the Gospels narrate the life of Jesus. And if you want to be like someone, read about them a lot, over and over, repeatedly. So while we study a text as a church, I just try to read as a book the four Gospels. Why? with this prayer that enough of that in time is going to just wear off on me. <laughs> and God knows I need it, amen? To where the gospel becomes just something that just you live and you breathe and you think and you th- it's just all over you. So just read the gospels. It's just two ways to make sure you're experiencing what? Say it with me. Gospel immersion daily. Second biblical guide to getting there to arriving theologically and practically at this place where forgiveness is how we live among each other. Understand that not all relationships are created equal. So be content with the variety in the effect of forgiveness while committed to unity in the foundation of forgiveness. Now, that's kind of wordy. Let me make it simple for you. I think one of the dangers in faith families when it comes to forgiveness is this. We have a situation with you know, you and someone else or me and someone else or just two people and they're not really that close but they're acquaintances or they're at least maybe high by friends. But they work it out, they forgive and then there's this assumption that because we had forgiveness we should now be better friends. We should be something after the forgiveness that we never were before. There was nothing wrong before, something happened, we forgave and now we're going to suddenly have this expectation that we're better friends and it kind of creates this weird dynamic. I tend to think that's a little unhealthy. Do you know that? 
Now, before you crucify me, hear me out. You can only maintain a limited amount of really deep friendships, first of all. Second of all, there are honest differences in people. You don't get along with everybody, and to that you can say, amen, you just don't. God's made us all different. We value everyone. We appreciate the diversity, but not every single personality type gets along. So when a problem does come up because of often personality types, and we forgive and we work through that, I think it could be unhealthy if we try to sometimes go back and make something happen that really was never really meant to happen. It was never a deep friendship to begin with, and perhaps you're just really different than they are. And so it's almost like you're going to breathe on this fire again and see if it ignites accidentally. I would encourage you, be content with the fact that you can actually have forgiveness in relationships and still not necessarily be really close to everyone. I don't think that's unbiblical or unhealthy. I think it's real. In a body, we can't all be best friends with each other. That's impossible humanly. We have finite bodies, finite time, and God knows finite memories. Are you with me? And, and, and so what do we do? Well, we develop friendships. Some of those go deeper. Some don't. We, we commit to unity and forgiveness across the board. No one here, no one who's part of this faith family, and hear me out, I'm going to say it pretty pastorally, no one's allowed not to forgive. But you are allowed to have a varying degree of effects in that forgiveness. Some of you will experience forgiveness in relationship and it will have an effect that will pull you closer and deeper. You're already close and deep and it will just forge that even greater. Others of you will simply, it will just keep the uh, parameters in place and it will still be forgiveness, but it won't have a, an effect that will actually make you better friends. It'll just make sure there's no, nothing between you. I mean, let's just be honest. How you experience forgiveness between your spouse and you is different than how you do with a person in your small group. Would you agree with that? And how you experience forgiveness with someone in your small group is different than how you experience someone that you just see on Sunday services. That's what I'm talking about. We agree that at its foundation, we forgive, period. That's what we do because God's forgiven us. We will find a way through this. But the effects of that could vary, and that's okay. I think it relieves a lot of maybe um, unrealistic expectations within the body. It's still love. It's still commitment. It's still Christ-like unity. But there's a varying degree of effects in how we feel that and sense that. I suggest be content with that. I base a lot of this probably on Philemon, by the way, just if you're curious where I kind of gather this. Philemon and Paul's experience and some of the situations there with their degrees of relationships, all right? So, first of all, gospel immersion daily. Be content with variety and the effect of forgiveness, but committed to the unity around the fact that we need it and have to give it. Thirdly, do the hard work of settling and burying. I tend to think the church today loves settling. I mean, we live in a very conversational society, don't we? We love to talk, and we love to talk about people's faults. So it appears that we love to settle. Something happens, we get together over coffee, and we're going to settle this. Now, there are those who like to run from things, pretend it didn't happen, I agree. But for the most part, I think if you were to ask your friend, hey, can we get together and try to figure this out, what happened? Most of the time, they'll say yes. The problem is often... We have autopsies, and we never have a funeral. We'll have an audit without any real reconciliation. In other words, we talk about something, and we keep talking, and we keep talking, and we keep talking, and like, hey, can we ever just settle and bury this thing? Can we finally, watch this, can we finally let it go and forgive and send it away? Does that make sense, guys? You know what's frustrating? I've never been one, so I don't know, but I would think for a mortician, someone who works in that field, to keep cutting on a body, finding causes of death, and then to say, oh, let's cut it open again. Uh, Let's cut it open again. And never have a funeral. When you know the cause of death, and I use that as a euphemism for basically the problem at hand, bury it. Forgive and move on. Amen. Or an audit that never ends. You want to wear a company out? Man, just keep an endless audit going. 
we need to see more. We need to see more. We need to see more. You're like, man, you, that's just... At some point, you've got to figure out what the problem is, make a reconciliation financially, and then move on. So, so I kind of encourage you, do the hard work of both settling and burying. Now, your question should be at this point, well, how do I know if I've buried it? That's the fourth biblical guide to getting there. Commit to a no-echo lifestyle. All right? So you have an audit, you have an autopsy, you're kind of figuring out what happened. You agree to forgive. You're going to bury it. Someone's going to absorb that pain. And they can because God absorbed ours. It's difficult, it's hard. But hey, we're in the same family, we can do this. We can work this out. At the point that that funeral takes place, commit to a no-echo lifestyle. Do not repeat the matter. Proverbs 17.9 says this, if you repeat a matter, you will separate even the very best of friends. I think Proverbs is a wonderfully practical book and isn't that the truth? Now I know there are people here who've, you thought you forgave something. Probably the person sitting beside you, you thought you forgave them until a month after it happened and you said you forgive them and you brought it back up. Oh, but you didn't just bring it back up to learn. Like, or to be grateful that God got you through it. It was really a jab. It was a knife in the ribs. Remember that time? It goes something like this. Yeah, like when you, you know, it's usually in public, kind of loud, to embarrass them. You keep doing that, you'll separate even the best of friends. It is biblical when you bury it to never repeat it. I'll always remember the day my wife and I committed to this kind of lifestyle. We were by the fridge, and we'd probably done a lot of that knife-in-the-rib stuff in our first few years of marriage, you know. Uh, sarcasm was kind of common. I'm not a big fan of sarcasm. I think most of it's usually sinful. I've told you that. I've written about it. I think there are times it can work, and it's okay. I've listed those as well. But for the most part, sar- sarcasm really destroys relationships, especially marriages. And we were pretty good at it. You know, we could throw a zinger out there, and it was about the past, and it was even better because you could throw it, man, and it not only carried its current weight, it had a ball and chain a mile long as well. And so we were just kind of working through how to communicate with each other in a general way. I remember this, having this whole talk about how she speaks female and I speak male, and we were not anywhere near understanding each other, and what can we do, and how, you know, the code whole thing, like, you know, I say this, and she thinks I mean that, and I really mean this, and I didn't say anything close to that, and she does the same thing, and... So this whole thing was just being fleshed on our home and we read this verse together. And so by the refrigerator in the kitchen, I remember I said to her and she said to me, I promise you when we settle something and we forgive, we, she said, I will never bring it up unless I need to learn or clarify. And even then I'll bring it up with your permission. And I can say to you that since that day, my wife has never repeated a matter to me. She has at times said, hey, can we, can we revisit something? When this occurred and we had to settle that, what exactly was that about? We, we kind of, you know, at the right, with the right attitude, kind of revisit it. It's helpful then. But she's never thrown a zinger at me. She's never, you know, hit below the belt. And I haven't either to her. Because of that single verse that if you repeat a matter, you separate the very best of friends. I don't want to wake up when they separate from my wife. She's the best friend I got, right? So if either I believe the Bible or I don't. So we just said to each other, no more repetition of things we've forgiven. And I can say, it's one of those three, we have three or four intersections in our marriage where things drastically change for the good. That's one of them. It just changed everything. I mean, you can forgive in confidence. And you can be honest and authentic in confidence, knowing that it's not going to be brought back up once it's settled. That's, that's a freedom that every couple should enjoy. This is one of those steps that gets you practically to where you already are theologically. Does that make sense, guys? So I just want to encourage you to take home truth, that you are willing to, to let it go, not to try to collect, but you're going to pray and you're going to live in such a way that, that you'll extend actually what you've experienced. Here's four things to help you get there. I know you believe that. Not a person here would say, Todd, I don't believe that theological truth. You wouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. This is, this is the Bible. 
Ephesians 4.32, Matthew 6.14 and 15, Matthew 18.35. We can list other ones. This is how we're to live. But is it difficult? Oh, man, the church said, hallelujah, amen, preach it, brother, amen? So what do we do? Here's just four biblical guides to get you here practically to where your theology is getting all the way down to your feet. And when you pray, you're not the world's biggest hypocrite asking for something that you're not willing to give. But instead, you're God's son or daughter. And just like you've been forgiven, yeah, God, I want to give the very same thing. Let me let you practice for a bit, okay? Because my gut feeling is this. As I've kind of shared these stories and, and biblical parameters and theological truths, I think for many people, God has brought a name to mind. It'd be like the Holy Spirit to make sure he's sanctifying you to that degree, wouldn't it? Can we pray just one-on-one, just individually right there in your own little sanctuary? Can we spend some time praying? Can I let you do some work with the Holy Spirit, work with God in forgiving that person whose name came to your mind? It just seems like there's no way I can, Todd. You don't know what happened. It's impossible. You have all these thoughts, and I'm not doubting it's difficult, but could we for a few minutes pray that God would give you God-like capacity to do what He does? Let's bow our heads. Band's going to join me. We're moving to communion when we'll remember what Jesus did. Could you right now pray forgivingly? Would you right now pray gratefully? Maybe you want to first mention your own name and thank God that he has saved you and forgiven you. And then perhaps you want to mention the name of that person that seems so hard to forgive. But would you? Would you forgive them? That brother, that sister. Would you let the debt go? Would you send away the invoice? Would you release the prisoner? Would you marked paid across the bill? Yeah, I know that's going to hurt. But that's forgiveness. It's absorbing the pain of a situation, letting them go because God has done that for you.